Today's scripture reading comes from Song of Songs and the Book of Psalm. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. He, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hello, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Exilic. And if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we are uh, turning five years old this November, so we're not very old uh, by any means. But the reason why I tell you how old our church is is because I went back and took a look at the sermon archives. And over the past four and a half years, we have done 16 different sermon series. Now, for some of you, today is your first day, and this is the first sermon series you've ever heard. Others of you may have heard maybe four or five, while others of you have heard all 16. Uh, but whether you've only heard one or all, all of them, can you take a guess what the most popular, downloaded, and listened to sermon series we've ever done is? What topic? It was about three years ago, and the topic was on the beauty and challenge of singleness, dating, and marriage. Not very surprising, uh, and rightfully so, because this is an area of our lives that's very relevant and uh, important to us. And so this is one of those things where we can't just talk about it once and never talk about it again. This is one of those things that we need to continually talk about because we need coaching in it and guidance on it uh, continually throughout our lives. And so uh, starting today for the next few weeks, we're going to embark on a new series on the Song of Songs, and the subtitle is The Surprising Things the, Bi uh, the Bible Says About the Body, Sex, and Love. Now, some of you have read the Song of Songs before, while others of you had no idea that it was in the Bible. But my hunch is that even if you have read the Song of Songs before, my hunch is that you still don't know what it's about. And I know that that was certainly the case for myself. And the reason for that is because the Song of Songs is not a story, it's a poem. Now, I would like to think that I'm sophisticated enough that I actually understand poetry, but I don't. I really don't like poetry that much. And the reason for that is because poetry has a maximum amount of meaning with a minimum use of words. Uh, poetry, unlike stories, also is very comfortable with ambiguity and discontinuity. Uh, poetry doesn't really care about tying up loose ends. It's very comfortable just moving very swiftly along, unlike stories are. And so it makes it very difficult to understand the Song of Songs when we do read it. But if we're able to excavate the Song of Songs in the right way, I do believe that there's a buried treasure underneath here. 
And the reason for that is because the Song of Songs is part of a genre in the Bible called wisdom literature. And the point of uh, wisdom literature is to parlay to us wisdom, and in this, in this case, wisdom about the body, sex, and love. And so that's what we're going to be taking a look at uh, for the next few weeks. Uh, but, bo- but before we dive deeper into the poem, I just want to say three things uh, before we begin. Number one, I want to uh, credit and acknowledge a former professor of mine, Dr. Ian Duggan. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because I borrowed many of the ideas from this sermon and in this entire series from him. And so if I were to acknowledge him every time I borrowed an idea, it would be every 30 seconds. And so I just want to get out of the way and just say thank you. Uh, Dr. Harvey, our own Dr. Harvey, has also written a uh, study guide on the Song of Songs uh, published by Crossway. And so uh, his book has also been very helpful to me and we'll actually have an opportunity to Q&A with his wife uh, during our Q&A session. The second thing that I want to say is that uh, if you look in your Bible, sometimes this is called the Song of Songs. Other times it's called the Song of Solomon. And the reason why there's two different titles is because some people believe that King Solomon wrote this song. Um, we know that he was a wise king. Based upon 1 Kings chapter 14, it says that he wrote 3,000 proverbs, 1,000 songs. And so it's very possible that this is one of the things that he wrote. His name is also mentioned a few times in this psalm. So it's very possible that he wrote it. At the same time, when you take a look at Solomon's life, he had... Uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and so he's not exactly this moral exemplar when it comes to love and romance, and so that's why other people think that he didn't write it. Uh, And then the pushback is maybe he wrote it at the end of his life after a series of regrets and learning wisdom from the mistakes that he made, and so we're not really sure whether he wrote it or the song is dedicated to him and, and made in honor of him. We're not really sure, but thirdly, here is what we do know. We know that this song, much like the story of Esther, never mentions God once. In fact, there is nothing very spiritual about this book at all. There's no mention of prayer, worship, church, temple, sacrifice. There is nothing spiritual about this book, this poem at all. If anything, it's very, very physical. And when you read it, it reads in many ways like erotic literature between a husband and a wife. So why is this poem in the Bible? Well, I believe that this poem, in many ways, is an analogy of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with each and every one of us. Obviously not an erotic one, but an intimate one, a close one, a personal one. Oftentimes, existentially, we feel like God is completely out of the picture and doesn't really care about us. But this poem would say the uh, contrary. What God really wants is a personal, meaningful close relationship with each and every one of us. And that's what this song or this poem is really, really about. So why don't we begin uh, by diving into this poem by, uh, by first looking at the main uh, central dominant figure in this poem, and it's a woman. And let me read for us verses five and six. And the woman says, dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Now, there is not a lot that we know about this woman. We don't even know what her name is, but here is what we do know. Her skin has become darkened. And as a result of that, this woman is very insecure about the way that she looks. 
and she's insecure about the way that she looks because she does not fit her culture's paradigm of what beauty is. In her culture, what they value is having light and fair skin, but her skin had become darkened. Now, in our culture, it's a little bit of the opposite. We value actually having some color, being bronzed or tanned, and uh, a, lot, a lot of that is actually because of the Industrial Revolution. When everyone worked indoors, they never saw the sun, kind of like us today. We don't have vitamin D. We all have a vitamin D deficiency. And so during the Industrial Revolution, our culture valued uh, having a little bit of more color on our skin. And so the point is that beauty in many ways is a relative thing. One culture thinks that this is beautiful. Another culture thinks that this is beautiful. And beauty just swings back and forth on a pendulum. But for this particular woman, her culture valued having very light and fair skin. Unfortunately, her skin had become darkened. And the reason why her skin had become darkened is because every single day she was working in the vineyards under the hot Middle Eastern sun. And the reason why she had to labor and toil this way is because her mother's sons were angry with her. I find it interesting that this poem says that it was her mother's sons rather than saying that her brothers were angry with her. And what that probably means is that she shared the same biological mother, but she may have had a different father from them. And I don't know if it's because her mom cheated and she was a result of it. We don't know. Again, this is poetry. It doesn't care about tying up loose ends. But what we do know is that her mother's sons, her brother, brother-in-laws, were upset at her. There was a lot of them. There was only her. And so what they made her do is work in their vineyards. I don't know if it's to collect bottles of wine and sell it. We have no idea. But they, they made her work in their vineyards to the neglect of her own. And so day after day, she's working in the vineyards underneath the sun, and her skin is being brutalized and scorched. And as a result of that, in many ways, she's the original Cinderella. She's exploited by her own family. She's a servant in her own home. And she's underneath this hot sun. And she's very insecure about the way that she looks, which is why she says, do not stare at me. And I get the feeling that when we take a look at this poem, this woman is not the only person that is insecure about the way that she looks. I get the feeling that this is not only, uh, only an ancient issue, but it's very much a modern day issue as well. In 2011, uh, Dove did some extensive research on women and girls about beauty. And I want to read to you some of their findings on the first page of your bulletin. Through research into self-esteem, body image, and body confidence, we've uncovered the difficulty women and girls have in recognizing their real beauty. Here are some key findings. Only 4% of women, 4% around the world consider themselves beautiful. 72% of girls feel tremendous pressure to be beautiful. 80% of women agree that every woman has something about her that is beautiful, but do not see their own beauty. 54% agree that when it comes to how they look, they are their own worst beauty critic. Researchers have found that fat talk, a phenomenon in which a person makes negative claims about their weight to others, is an expected norm among women and a way to appear more modest. The Journal of Eating Disorders found that while fat talk tended to decrease with age, old talk often came in to replace it, and that both were reported by women who appear to have a negative body image. And you know what? This is not just a female issue. 
when it comes to body image, but this is also a male issue as well. You know, growing up, my first love, uh, even before God, was basketball. My daughters sleep with their dolls. I slept with my basketball growing up. I loved playing ball, but there was always one thing that made me hate playing basketball, and it was whenever we had to play shirts and skins. You know what shirts and skins are? One team gets to play with their shirts on. The other team has to play with their shirts off. And for whatever reason, I was always on the stinking team that had to take their shirts off. And I would always think to myself, why do we have to take our shirts off? Is it really that hard to remember the four other people on our team? Like, why do we have to do this? And so for whatever reason, I would always have to take my shirt off because I was on that team. And growing up, I was a late bloomer and I had these bony shoulders. You could see my rib cage. And I just hated taking off my shirt whenever we had to play. I was already insecure about being an ethnic minority in a predominantly white neighborhood. But now I have to take off my shirt too. And so it just made me doubly insecure. And so part of the reason why we all feel insecure about our bodies is because we let our culture define what beauty is. Did you know that the average height and weight of a U.S. uh, model, a female model, 5'10", 120 pounds. You know what the average height and weight of a non-model is in America? 5'3", 166 pounds. 5'10", 120 pounds, 5'3", 166 pounds. So we let our culture define what beauty is. But we not only let our culture define what beauty is, we let our culture communicate to us what beauty is through advertisements, social media, the shows that we watch. And then we soak those things up like a sponge. We compare our bodies to their bodies, and inevitably it leads to a very negative and low opinion of our bodies. You know what that leads to? Depression, a gamut of eating disorders, and at worst, even suicide. You know, C.S. Lewis once said, some of the worst things that have ever been said about us have not been said by other people. They have been said by ourselves. Much of the suffering that is inflicted upon us have not been done by other people, but it's the lies that we tell ourselves and the lies that we believe. That was certainly the case for this woman. And I wonder if that is the case for many of us in this room. This is something that is not just an ancient thing, but it's very much a modern day issue in our time today. So maybe I can take a step back and then ask ourselves this question. So why do we care so much about beauty then? Why is this thing that is something, why is beauty something that is so important to all of us? I think a part of the reason for that is because we're not just constituted of cells and atoms and tissues and organs, but we're made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God, we are called to reflect his beauty. Uh, Years ago when I lived in uh, Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, I lived a a couple blocks away from this neighborhood called Skid Row. Uh, And if you've never been there before, it has the highest density of homelessness in America. And it's only gotten worse over the years. Uh, But every month, my friends and I, we would go out to Skid Row and we would cut uh, homeless people's hair. And sometimes I would cut up to 20 20 homeless people's hair uh, per day. And you would think, they're homeless, the hair is unwashed, clothes are unwashed, they don't really care how they look, they don't really care what kind of haircut they got, they get, and I can tell you after having done that for years, 
That is not true. They very, very much care how they look like. They're very, very particular about how their fade was and uh, whether it was high and tight or if they wanted a line here or a line there. They're very, very particular about it. Now, why? Where did this sense of dignity come from? Did it, did it come from their work? No, they didn't have a job. Did it come from uh, their home? No, they were homeless. Did it come from their material possessions? No, they didn't really have anything. So where did this innate sense of dignity come from, this value and this worth and this desire to be beautiful? Whether they knew it or not, it stems from the fact that they are made in the image of God. John Gray is an atheist philosopher. He teaches at the London School of Economics, and he wrote a pretty influential book called Straw Dogs. And I just want to read you an excerpt of what he says in the book. And he says, Darwin has shown us that we are animals. Any atheist claim that humans have special dignity is only a secular coercion of Christian faith. It is a derivative of Christianity. Now, John Gray is not writing this as a Christian, but he is writing this as a secular atheist philosopher. Now, where do we see this idea that we have an innate sense of dignity and worth in Christianity? Well, if you turn back to the middle of your bulletin, I want to read us Psalm 139 again. And it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Here in Psalm 139, it says that God is the one that made us and knit us uh, together in our mother's womb. And so do you know what that means? Here's what Psalm 139 is saying. If it's true that God is the one that made us, for us to have a very low and negative view of our bodies, it is profoundly disrespectful to the one that made us. If it's true that God made us. If I were to make a sculpture and pour my heart and soul into this sculpture, my heart and soul and love into the sculpture, and you walk by and completely discredit it and have a very negative opinion of it, that is profoundly disrespectful to me. How much more is it the case if God is the one that made our bodies, but we have a negative and low opinion of it? In Genesis 1, in the creation account, God makes bodies of land and he makes bodies of water, and he says, behold, it is good. On the sixth day, he makes Adam and Eve's body, and he says, behold, it is very good. Humanity is the only thing where God says, behold, it is very good. Now, was Eve's body very good because she was 5'10", 120 pounds? Of course not. Eve's body, Adam's body was very good because he made them in his image. It had nothing to do with their skin color, their shape, or their weight, but it had everything to do with the fact that God is the one that made their bodies. And so Christianity has always had a very robust view, a high view of the body. Now here's the problem. Our culture takes that high view of the body and elevates it to the most ultimate thing, where the outside is far, far more important than uh, what the inside is. 
And so this is, when our culture thinks that way, it obviously influence, influences the way that we all think and we all feel as well. And so for those of you who are on dating apps, how many times have you swiped left solely based upon how a person looks? You don't even know their name, their bio, their interest. You just swipe left just because of the way that they look. How many times have you walked into a room, you automatically eliminate 9 out of 10 people, sometimes 10 out of 10 people, solely based on how they look? Meanwhile, they might not be boyfriend, girlfriend material, but they are husband and wife material. And they're sitting right underneath your nose, but because of your superficiality, you're the one that's missing out. That's so sad. How many of us work out and eat healthy? There's nothing wrong with that. But how many of us religiously work out and do mathematical equations every time we eat? Oftentimes when we think about the body, we don't view it as a gift from God or as Romans 12 would say, where we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, service to him and to other people. But the way that we view our bodies is what? As a curse to control rather than as a gift from the one that gave it to us. So Christianity has a very robust view of the body, but oftentimes we let our culture influence us in terms of how important these, uh, the aesthetics uh, are that we display. And so how can we get a new perspective on our own body image? Well, let me read for us verses 9, 10, and 15. And this time it is not the woman speaking, but it is the man her fiance, and this is what she says. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. I don't recommend calling someone you're attracted to a horse, but in this particular instance, it works well. Uh, But you get the point. It's an analogy. And he wants her to know how beautiful she is, which is why she's able to say in verse 5, dark am I, yet lovely. One of the ways to heal the self-alienation that we all experience with our bodies is when someone lifts us out of our own self-condemning eyes to help us see what we truly look like. You know, sometimes I try to Uh, compliment uh, my wife Hannah about how beautiful she is when she tries something on. I was commenting about her dimples this morning. And oftentimes when I compliment my wife about how beautiful she is, more often than not, her response is thanks, but I don't feel that way. And that's so sad to me. Because when when I look at her, I see someone that is beautiful. But sometimes she can't see the way that I see her. But you know what? She's not the only one that feels that way. Uh, to a certain extent, we all have this body dysphoria where we, f- we feel very uncomfortable in our own skin, where we feel like we're at war with our own bodies. But the only way of healing that dysphoria is when you realize how beautiful you really are. In other words, someone else has to say that about you. So Dove also did... Um, a social experiment where they hired this uh, FBI-trained forensic uh, artist. And these artists, you know, they typically sketch criminals. Uh, But in this particular social experiment, uh, 
what they did is they hired the forensics artist to uh, sketch two portraits of every woman. One portrait was based upon how the woman described herself. The other portrait was uh, uh, sketched based upon how other people described her. So there was a room like this with a curtain dividing it right in half. The artist was on, on this side, the woman was on this side, and the artist would say, tell me a little bit about your facial features, the contours of your face, and they would talk about their nose, their eyes, their chin, their jaw, etc. And he would draw uh, a sketch based upon how they describe themselves. And then the woman would leave and other women would come in and also talk and describe uh, this exact same woman, how they perceived her. And so he would say the same thing, tell me a little bit about her features, the contours of her face. And the results were staggering because after both sketches were done, the artist would place them side by side and bring the woman in. And when the woman saw the sketch where she described herself, it was harsh, it was very, very critical, and obviously that picture did not come out looking very beautiful. But when she took a look at the other sketch where other people described what she looked like, she was far more beautiful and, and the results were a lot more charitable and generous. And you can almost see a ton of weight being lifted off the woman's shoulders when she realized, this is what I look like? I thought I looked like that, but this is how other people see me? And the point of what I'm saying, based upon what the fiance is doing to his wife, based upon what I do for my wife, uh, based upon this uh, Dove social experiment, is that you can look in the mirror all you want, lose all the weight you want, and you can say self-positive things like, you sexy beast, there's no one else like you, and compliment yourself all you want. That's not going to heal the self-alienation that you experience, though. You know that, right? The only thing that is going to heal the dysphoria that we all have is when someone else says it about us. For whatever reason, it means a whole lot more, particularly when they can see your freckles, your, your warts, your blemishes, your stains, your issues, particularly when they can see the depths of your heart and they still love you to the sky anyway. Do you know where I'm going with this? When someone can see the depths of your heart but they love you to the sky anyway? This is what the Bible is all about. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says you are ugly, but it has nothing to do with the shape of your body, the color of your skin, but it has everything to do with the shape of your heart and its deformity and the color of your heart, which is dark. Do you realize that if your worst critics could climb right into your heart, they would only find more ammunition to use against you, not less? Do you realize that our hearts are really what make us ugly? Not the shape of our waist. And it is for that reason that God came in the man Jesus Christ. This is what we would call the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became man and took on bodily flesh. Do you realize that in every other religion, the idea that a transcendent God would, that would take on a body, that is completely preposterous and blasphemous. Why would a transcendent God ever condescend, uh, condescend himself to take on human flesh? No way. But in Christianity, the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation that the body is good. And what did Jesus look like when he became a man? Isaiah 53, there is no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him. 
nothing about his appearance that we should draw near to him. So he wasn't particularly attractive. And yet Christians around the world today say that he is the most beautiful man that has ever lived. Why? Because he was a nice guy, moral teacher, a good rabbi? Of course not. Why is he the most beautiful person that has ever lived? It's because he sacrificed his body for us. On the cross, something magical happens. Jesus takes our dark heart and he implants it into himself and he gives us his pure heart and he plants it to us. But he not only dies for our sins, but he also sacrificed his body so that one day we can also get a glorified new body as well. Our bodies are broken. Our bodies will fail us. We will only grow more and more toes on our crow's feet. But eventually, one day we will have a glorified body because of what Jesus has done on the cross uh, and in the empty tomb. We've all heard the expression, beauty uh, is in the eyes of the beholder. And that's true, but it depends on who the one beholding us is. If we are the beholder, all we ever see are carnival mirrors. Short arms, not tall enough, not the correct amount of weight. All we ever see are carnival mirrors. But if it's true that beauty is not in the eyes of the beholder and God is the one that beholds us, not as we are in and of ourselves, but who we are in the person of Jesus Christ, then you really are beautiful. Now, you might be thinking, that's great. I'm glad that God loves me as I am and all da 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 but let's be honest for a moment. I have to play against, I have to play with our culture's rules of engagement, okay? I'm not going to write on my uh, Coffee Meets Bail account, God loves me as I am and my body. And that's not going to help me get someone. <laughs> I have to play with our culture's rules. I get it. I get it. I understand that. Uh, and we do. At the same time, we do have to be careful of, of placing a, a, an ultimate sense instead of a penultimate sense with, with our uh, aesthetics and our, uh, the way that we look. If someone wants to be with you based upon how you look only, do you really want to be with a person like that anyway? And you know what real attraction looks like? A person that is truly attractive is a person that is centered and secure. You know what's really unattractive? A person that's actually physically beautiful, but really, really insecure. Okay. Now you might be thinking, well, I want to be both. I want to be beautiful on the outside and the inside, and fine, you win. <laughs> okay? You win, but again, when you read scripture over and over, it does seem to place uh, an ultimate sense on the inside. And I'm just going to read for you a passage from 1 Peter 3. It's not in your bulletin, but let me just read this for us. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. The theologian and author Francis Schaeffer once said, no work of art is more important than the Christian's own life. Schaeffer doesn't say that no work of art which is your body, is the most important. What, what does he say? No work of art is more important than the Christian's life as a whole, inside and out. So let me close with a few questions that you can ask yourself, and then we'll pray. Do I view my body as a gift to care for 
Or do I view my body as a curse to control? Do I work on the size of my waist more than the size of my heart? What would it look like on a daily basis for me to work on the size of my heart? Do I care more about my physical health than my spiritual health? And maybe for some of us others, do I care more about my spiritual health than my physical health? Do I spend more time looking in the mirror than the mirror of God's word? Do I value our culture's assessment and measure of beauty more than God's assessment and measure of beauty? Friends, we live in a broken world. We live with broken bodies and we live with disordered thoughts and Satan uses that to his advantage to poison our minds and our imaginations to places that it should not go. And it is precisely during those moments that we need to captivate our thoughts rather than our thoughts captivating us We need to captivate our thoughts and make it obedient to Jesus. And the way that we do that is by reflecting upon a high theology of the body that God is the one that made us, formed us, and knit us together in our mother's room very uniquely. And secondly, it is precisely during these moments where our imaginations run away from us that we remember the sacrificed body of Jesus Christ who loved you enough and considered you so beautiful that he would die for you, both body and body and soul. Let's pray together. Father, this is a a battle that we uh, face uh, in many ways daily whenever we look in the mirror. And so it is my prayer for my brothers and sisters that we would do the best that we can not to Uh, let uh, our culture's doctrine of beauty really influence us and sort of hijack how we uh, ought to feel. But it is my prayer that we would let the word of God really shape us and help us to understand that we are specially made by your hands and that you loved us enough that you would sacrifice your own body uh, without any regard uh, for our sins and how you offered up your body for us and so help us to do the same help us to offer our bodies uh, as a living sacrifice to you and to our neighbors in Jesus name I pray amen